Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, my guest is David Mara, and he is the Chief Investment Officer at Markin Asset Management. Welcome, David. Well, Gary, it's uh, really nice to be with you. So, David, tell us, how, how what, what got you into investment management? Kind of tell, tell us your backstory. Yeah, sure. So uh, I did my graduate work in finance uh, at the University of Chicago. And um, a few years out of Chicago, I started uh, an internet search engine uh, startup. So this was back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when it was the Wild West of uh, search engines. Right. And that experience really introduced me to um, technology, the transformative power of technology, um, how you could use cheaper compute and more data to start to do really new and interesting things. And prior to that experience, I really had not had much experience with technology at all. But you're running when you're running a you know a 75 person startup and you're building all sorts of technology. It just gives you a bug. It just gives you a bug that you can't ever let it go. Right. And so after that venture, I started thinking about how could I use my background in finance and investing uh, and combine it with what was clear to me. You know, back in the early 2000s, was compute and data was really going to change or had the potential to change how assets were managed, you know, for the better, mm-hmm. right? Deeper insights into, into data and facts to, to better manage risks and find opportunities. So uh, uh, back in 2010, I founded a, a machine learning based quantitative investment research firm. So no trading, just providing research and building algorithmic strategies for other investors, mostly institutional investors. And three years ago, I partnered with my partner, uh, Matt Kinzer, and we founded Markin to bring those strategies uh, that we were creating on my investment research uh, quantitative platform to investors. Okay. So it's been it's been a few it's been a few hops, you know. First technology, then technology with investing, and now actually, you know, as a as a asset manager. Yeah, can, can you? Talk a little bit about that because you know many times people think that when when they're um, using an investment advisor to help them invest their money that it's that that person is the one who is um, you know picking the stocks or the funds right. or or whatever. Can you can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So we're like a you know as an asset manager, we're like a fund manager, right? We're providing uh, uh, investment strategies um, to other advisors, mm-hmm. right? That's how we work. So just the way a fund manager uh, would provide their mutual fund to 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 uh, wealth advisors to to put their clients, and we're doing the same thing. Our our vehicles are we have funds, we have managed accounts, we have both. Um, the way it works is, you know, when you go to as an individual and you meet your uh, wealth advisor, 
Um, you know, most of the time, some wealth advisors do still are stock pickers, so to speak, right. but that's getting increasingly rare in the industry. Most of the time, the job of the advisor is what we call in the industry, the role of an allocator, right? So an allocator means their job is to build portfolios for each different type of customer that they have, each individual or family that they have. And each of those portfolios is built with a certain mandate and kind of risk preference in mind. But the role of the advisor is not picking individual stocks or bonds in there. It's to find managers, right? To allocate to managers that they believe have a good track record and other analysis they do that they think they're going to fit well into these portfolios that they're building. So the wealth advisor's role is as what we call in the industry an allocator to find good managers like ourselves, uh, like Markin, and um, put those into the appropriate place in individual client portfolios. Now, because you guys are using technology and everything else, I'm I'm assuming you guys are are using AI to help you with this. Yeah, how, I mean, AI, how are you guys incorporating that? That's right. I mean, uh, uh, there's a little bit of discrepancy in the technology industry. What yes. is machine learning yes. versus AI these days? So we'll kind of gloss over that. But 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 broadly speaking, you're correct. Um, whether it's using machine learning. Uh, or AI, or just advanced statistical techniques, what we would call quantitative finance. Um, we are using those techniques. And the reason why we do that, you know, that's my background. And and um, uh, the reason why we do that is because of what I mentioned earlier, we can use more data to give us a more real-time and hopefully more accurate picture of what is happening with different asset classes, with different individual stocks, for example, um, so that we can better manage the portfolios. Um, typically, and this is a little bit in the weeds for the individual, but it's it's worth understanding. There's really three basic inputs into any kind of modern portfolio. Modern portfolio management came about with Markowitz and in any type of Markowitz um, uh, portfolio, you have uh, uh, three inputs, uh, expected returns of what you're investing in, expected correlations, of what you're investing in and expected risks of what you're investing in. And these three things, quantitatively speaking, are what these three inputs are what allow us to create a well-diversified portfolio where not everything in the portfolio is highly correlated with each other. That would be very low diversification, for example, that would put more risk on a portfolio uh, and, uh, 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 and that are going to have good expected returns relative to the amount of risk you're taking. Right. So that's typically what we're, you know, uh, we're looking to kind of quantify those inputs in a more scientifically robust way so that we can get uh, exactly kind of uh, so we can work toward getting the kind of outcomes that the investor is looking for. You know, and outcome, typical outcomes for investors that they're looking for is to compound wealth prior to retirement, um, to uh, to provide income and yield in retirement, uh, and then across someone's lifespan to reduce expo uh, exposure to taxes. Right, right. Again, if you a lot of what we're reading about AI and things like that, it, it's a lot of articles and the talking heads are, are saying that AI is going to replace people. You know. I'm a CPA. They're going to replace 
you know, a CPA AI will be able to do your taxes for you. AI is going to be able to do your investing for you. What do you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, I know yeah, sure. you kind of talked about how, how you guys are using it, but you know, I guess what are, what are the chances that AI truly can replace an asset manager um, in, in investing your portfolio for you? Yeah, I don't see it as replacement, um, primarily speaking, right? Um, uh, let's just talk about first what AI is, right? Because sure. um, for a lot of people, it's still something very new, even though we're starting to experience it in our everyday lives on our phones and things of that sort. Yep. But AI, simply put, is a form of automation. Mm -hmm. And automation has been around for hundreds of years, right. right? The big jump in automation was, of course, the Industrial Revolution, when lots of things started to become automated. Um, but it's just another form of automation. What this particular form of automation is good at, um, and then I'm speaking about generative AI, this current generation of artificial intelligence, right. um, uh, it's good at um, taking the written word and regurgitating it in useful forms, mm -hmm. right? So if we want to use it to search something, we don't have to look through a lot of links uh, of different websites, we can just put the question in the, the, the artificial intelligence has actually, you know, sort of ingested already all of the, all of the websites in the world, sort of slightly exaggerated, but generally sure. along those lines and is able to regurgitate at a high level, what it kind of has found out there. This turns out to have lots of applications across many different industries. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, uh, you know, you put in, general information, and you can start to get out very specific answers to very specific questions. That type of automation does lend itself to typical white collar and managerial decision making and analytical type of jobs. And so it's more akin to the spreadsheet, let's say, or email, let's say, than it is to the uh, introduction of the steam engine or the loom uh, or, you know, or electricity or something along those lines. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, so it's a form of automation. It, it can automate these kind of analytical and managerial and decision-making type of jobs that lends itself to that. And so uh, it's going to uh, increasingly, so it's good at those types of tasks, right? So it's going to replace um, to some degree, like any automation does, the people who do uh, a portion of those tasks. Usually it doesn't eliminate the task. It just right. does a portion of the task. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also say regarding automation, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there with anxiety about their jobs and things of that nature. Uh, the history of automation is that it doesn't destroy jobs as much as it shifts jobs to the people who are creating the automated technology. Mm -hmm. So you can think of somebody doing some managerial decision-making, and let's say today it takes 10 people, and in the future it takes three. Many of those seven jobs that seemingly get lost are actually just transferred to programmers. Right. So <clears throat> we've ta talked a little bit about the the, the data side of it um, and, and how you guys are using technology. So how does that... Um, help you or or how does that make marking um different than you know your your other asset managers that are out there yeah sure so our particular expertise is 
we've been using this technology for a long time. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. professionally, um, I've been using it since the late 90s and in the investment management space since about 2010. So you have a lot of you know experience with using just these kind of techniques broadly writ. Um, we use them primarily to uh, our, our our portfolios are constructed. You know, if you think of, let me comp- make an analogy this way. If you think of, you know, you're investing in a 60-40 portfolio, mm-hmm. right? A 64 is a passive portfolio, as we all know. It's it's got 60% uh the equity index and 40%, say, a bond index in there. Right. Um, if we go back to two years ago, the 60-40 portfolio was down as much as the uh equity index, right? It was much, much riskier than people ever thought it would be. Ended the year down around 17, 17 and a half percent, something like that. Most people who invest in the 6440 portfolio didn't expect it to be down that far. Why, why is it that, you know, that kind of uh, riskiness, you know, is apparent and how can you get rid of it? Um, a passive portfolio has no risk management associated with it. Right. There's nobody managing risks. It just does whatever the equity index does and it does whatever the bond index in a combined way and you get the result. Um, that kind of unmanaged, um, uh, uh, you know, no risk management type of investment, as it proved out two years ago, can be very dangerous for certain people in retirement, for example. Um, if you're in retirement or near retirement and your portfolio is down 17%, and we did have, um, uh, not clients of ours, because we don't build that kind of product, but we knew of uh, of people, of course, who really had to think about whether they could take their monthly income draw, wow. uh, because you're worried about impinging your future income right. when you're down that much. So uh, people had to cut back. Um, what, what we seek to do is, again, avoid those outcomes to provide stable income in retirement or more consistent compounding of wealth prior to retirement by managing risks. And right. that's where I'm going. We're using these technologies to understand at a deeper level what are the expected returns, what are the risks, and what are the correlations associated with everything we're investing in such that we can avoid large losses. And that's a key uh, pillar of our firm is avoiding large losses. Um, and we've been very happy with our ability to do that, particularly in the last few years when it's been such a roller coaster. Now, um, I guess how many, um, I guess how many advisors uh, are you guys working with right now? So uh, uh, I'm actually the chief investment officer. Correct. So I manage, I manage Correct. the product. That's another uh, side of the business that actually my partner deals with. So I probably don't have the most up-to-date number there. But we have uh, uh, hundreds upon hundreds of client accounts. Right, right. So um, I guess in 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 going through this, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you just kind of said some of your uh, the things that you that you guys are trying to do are um, obviously help mitigate um, risk that they have, but but be able to balance that. What are some of the other core principles that you guys have at Markin? So uh, avoiding uh, large drawdowns is a one principle. Uh, and the other principle is what we call outcome-based investing. So that is, again, just going back to my 60-40 portfolio example, it just does what it does, right? Mm-hmm. It's not designed to produce any particular outcome. It's not designed to target a per- particular uh, level of risk. 
because its risk highly varies through time. It's not designed to provide any particular level of return. It's not designed to be tax efficient. It's not designed to pr produce any particular level of income. It just does what it does. Um, Outcome-based investing is where uh, we, we create an algorithm that is close to the utility function of the investor. So we think of the investor as in retirement. Their utility function is sta a stable income type of utility function. They have to avoid large losses and they want stable income. We can code that as an as an algorithm, right? That's a and then we can have our investments work toward that outcome. So we actually our investments are working toward the outcomes that the end investor has. Higher income, better compounding of wealth before retirement, low exposure to taxes are the three big big outcomes that we're working toward. Right. And that's very just just Gary did point. That's very unique in the industry. That's what I was going to ask you. How how does this compare to, you know, others in the industry? Yeah, I mean, most people out there are building investment product at least th that I can see and I'm not an expert on everything in the industry, but generally what I see is, you know, you're, you're building a a large cap equity fund or a mid cap equity fund or a growth equity fund or a value equity fund. And you're seeking to uh, do better than the the passive index associated with each of those, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, those are not um, outcome. That's not outcome based investing. That's just investing in a, in what you know what we would call a risk factor. You're investing in a risk factor, um, and you're hoping that that risk factor uh, does well over a period of time. Um, outcome based investing is actually truly getting at what the investor is looking for as an outcome, income compounding of wealth, less, expo less, less exposure to taxes. Those are things that people are, that are very concrete for people. And then having the portfolio actually work toward that. So I do think it's, I, I do think um, uh, it's not entirely new. We didn't invent it or anything like that. Um, but we find that uh, advisors find it much easier to understand and that the return profile that the investor gets over the long run better fits with what, you know, uh, better fits with the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. So if people like, you know, what they're hearing and you're, you're saying here about, you know, with the, the expected um, outcomes and stuff like that, when they're talking with their advisor, how, how do they say, Hey, this is what I want or ask them, um, do, do they use this type of approach? I mean, how, how do they, how do they get this conversation going? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, when you speak to your advisor, hopefully, first of all, you want to choose an advisor, I think, that fits with your investment philosophy, mm -hmm. that you're comfortable with the way they are describing how they invest. I think that's very important between uh, uh, a client, individual investor and advisor. So find an advisor who speaks to you in an understandable way asks your questions, you're comfortable with the answer to those questions with regards to um, investment management and, and of course, all the things. Um, I think that's a way to choose an advisor um, because you need to trust your advisor because your advisor is going to be giving you advice. And sometimes that advice might be hard to swallow depending on what's going on in the market. So right. you need to trust your advisor. I think that's a very important starting point. I think another thing that investors can do um, is to... Um, think about what their outcomes are that they're looking for in as realistic a way as possible. And then look for an advisor 
who is able to sort of um, uh, get that out of them, if you know what I mean. Um, sometimes advisors use surveys to try to understand their risk preferences or uh, the outcomes that they're looking for. Um, they may be, uh, advisor might be actually trying to look at your whole kind of income statement and balance sheet, your household balance sheet, so to speak, to see where your liabilities are, where your exposure is in down markets and that kind of thing, and try to diverse away, diversify away those risks. Um, so I think um, it certainly helps with you as an individual to kind of start to take ownership of what is it I really am trying to achieve in my retirement? How many more years do I want to work? How much income do I see myself having over different time horizons? Uh, and how hard do I want to work? You know, all these questions go into what that balance sheet is going to look like. And then, of course, how much I've saved, how much risk I'm willing to take on in order to get return. You know, it's it, all of that is a is a complex thing. There's no there's no silver bullet that we can uh, answer on this podcast. But I think it starts with um, being realistic about those kind of things that I'm talking about so that you can start to build a picture of what your your income statement and your balance sheet is going to look like. Advisor can certainly help that with you. Uh, and then that articulation of, okay, therefore, how much income am I going to need for how many years starts to become very apparent. Am I going to need a yield of 5%, which is a stretch in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. An annual yield of 5% on my assets that I can take out as income? Or do I only need 3% in which you're in a great position, right? And you don't have to take on much risk. So um, there's no silver bullet there, but it, it it does start with being realistic about your income statement and your balance sheet. Yeah. So the, I'm assuming that, that in your guys, um, when, when you're building out these portfolios and things, you know, like, like, you know, obviously the, the economy, current economy has something to do with it but then also with the elections i mean you know we just had DeSantos decide that he's dropping out now which is is changing the 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 picture of of what's going to happen um how does you know something like that play into what you're doing i'll explain that in a second i i would say that just for the individual investor they shouldn't think about those things too much okay um uh elections on average election. So I'm thinking about presidential election years, for mm -hmm. example. Um, I just saw some uh, research reports on this, looking at, you know, the last uh, 70 years of presidential elections, I think it was. And they looked at the return of the S and P 500 in, in election years um, uh, by party, you know, which party ultimately wins and non-election years. Right. Uh, and they found that, for example, just election years versus non-election years, the S&P 500 has just a 1% uh, differential. It tends to be about 1% lower in election years than it does in non-presidential election years. It's not a big difference. It's certainly something, uh, but it's not a big difference. And I don't think uh, in general, you know, individuals should be thinking too hard about presidential elections, which have uncertain outcomes and, you know, this kind of thing and 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 kind of taking that into account in their portfolio. Certainly, we as asset managers, um, you know, do look at that in 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 more depth um, um, to see how, in particular, it's going to affect, say, the U.S. dollar and therefore, you know, global growth rates, um, or uh, uh, or how if a particular party or or a particular administration is talking about sector specific legislation that might happen 
mm-hmm. um, how that might affect the returns of different uh, sectors. And therefore, we might overweight or underweight certain sectors based on uh, election outcome probabilities. Um, but I don't think that's something the individual investor probably wants to get too much into. Uh, it takes quite a lot of data and quantitative analysis, and there's high uncertainty simply because elections have high uncertainty. Yeah, and I, I think people just are, are more nervous, um, you know, about it and thinking that, okay, if if presidency changes or it stays the same, what's that going, going to do? And I think that 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 many times, um, you know, all of us, you know, are nervous about what's what's happening in the world and in the economy right now. So it is definitely a, a lot different. Um, asked you a bunch of stuff. What have I not asked you that you wish I had? Well, I would just say, um, you know, going back to the earlier discussion about artificial intelligence, um, I think that. Uh, you know, and I've lived with this technology now for more than 20 years, right? I've been involved with it. Um, I do think it's the real deal this time. Uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, not only have I played a role in kind of, you know, coding this technology over the years, but I also went in my management consulting life. Um, I helped, you know, large multinationals implement data and statistical based systems, you know, in their business processes. Mm-hmm. And in uh, the previous decade, it was very, very hard to do that. Very hard to build these machine learning and AI-based systems simply because companies didn't have the the right data infrastructures. Um, The models were quite finicky. The use cases were narrow. um, And all of that has changed in the past year. Generative AI, which is built on what they call foundational models, which are just very broad-based general models, um, allows companies to implement this technology much, much faster and more effectively than anything they ever could have in the past 10 years, right? And we've been hearing about machine learning and right. AI to a lower degree of volume, so to speak, in the last 10 years, but it's been around for quite a while. It was hard to implement, and suddenly it's much, much easier to implement across a much wider array of business processes. And I do think it ha- holds the potential for individual companies that are aggressive in implementing this technology to dramatically increase their productivity, um, their margin expansion, and and basically their earnings. And so recently, you know, we've introduced um, uh, what we call an AI beneficiaries strategy. Uh, we call it market earnings boost. But we're looking at the companies that are going to be able to drive their earnings over the long term simply because they're they're going to they are more better positioned to implement artificial intelligence across their business processes and and therefore lower their cost structure or increase their growth rate what we just loosely call margin expansion so those are um things i think investors should be looking at is I think we're on an inflection point here in terms of certain companies are going to be able to implement these technologies, grow faster, grow more profitably. And that creates an opportunity for uh, an asset manager like me to find those companies, invest in them and and, and generate return for clients um, and potentially at a, at a lower risk, actually. Um, so I think investors should be aware that artificial intelligence is not just a, a theme that's going to go away in five years. This is a 
a, a form of automation, just like the industrial revolution was a collection of automate automation that I think has the potential to drive global economy to a higher level level of growth. But of, of course, there'll be a lot of transition. But I do think there's a lot of a lot of money to be made for individual investors. Right, right. Um, it's definitely. It, I have found it very interesting in, in seeing how AI is playing a role in in all of our businesses. Um, and just the the interaction that that we're all having, um, and I think I think some of it's for the good, some of it's not for the good, um, but I think it's definitely something that we all need to keep our eye out on for sure. Yeah, yeah, because there are, um, and I think we're all we're, we're all going to get sick and tired of hearing uh, the term AI after yes. a while here, but uh, even if we're sick and tired of the term. Um, the phenomenon of this form of automation does present investors with an opportunity to profit from it. Right. So, David, if, if people like what they hear um, on this podcast and they want to reach out to, to you or, or, or someone that, that that works with you, how can they reach out to you guys? Sure. Uh, uh, you know, if, if someone is in, interested in the type of strategies we offer, um, or uh, an RIA, you know, advisors uh, listening to your podcast want to reach out to us, either one, you can go to our website, uh, markinfunds.com, M-A-R-K-I-N-F-U-N-D-S.com, markinfunds.com. And the website has any number of, you know, ways that people can uh, not only learn about us, but also, you know, contact us. Great. David, I really appreciate your time. Uh, definitely a very, very interesting. Um, and, and you know, again, I, I like learning more about AI and, and what you guys are doing. So I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Gary. It was a real pleasure to be on the show today. Great. Hey, this week, our guest was David Mara, and he is the Chief Investment Officer at Markin Asset Management. Thank you, guys, and I'll see you next week. 49 faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over $987,342 in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.